The scripture text for this morning is from the book of Jonah. I'll be reading chapters 3 and 4. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his road, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from the evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? 
come before the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, the entrance of your word brings light. And we pray this morning that the light of the gospel, the light of your great grace would shine out of these words this morning. Shine off these pages, Lord, by the work of your Spirit. That Christ and his saving greatness would be seen, would be treasured, would be precious, would be renewed in our minds. Lord, uh, we commit ourselves to you this morning. I ask for your help this morning. I need your grace, your strength, your boldness, a calm mind. Lord, speak through your word this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, good morning to you all. For those of you that have not uh, met me, or I haven't met you, and, and that's probably a lot of you, <laughs> um, my name is Ethan Larson, and uh, we're kind of new to this fellowship. Um, this is my first time preaching here. Um, I actually serve as a missionary with uh, a group called Training Leaders International, and we do theological education all over the world. So it's uh, my privilege to uh, serve pastors and, and teach them, and I'll be uh, heading to Romania uh, this Thursday. So I'd invite your prayers and uh, ask you to pray for me and pray for those pastors there. But this morning, uh, I wanted to look at the book of Jonah. Can't look at all of it. It is a short book, but it's longer than we have time for. Um, and more than anything else, uh, I, I want to help you, by God's grace, to see God in this story. It's a familiar story, and, and getting a little ahead of myself, but the danger with familiar stories is that we think we know them. <laughs> pray that God would uh, shine new light from his word to us this morning. Jonah is a, is a book about confusion. Jonah is, is a book, um, illustrates a lot of things. One of the things it illustrates is when values get horribly out of whack. I heard a story uh, uh, some years ago, and I tried to look it up on the internet. Um, I, I think it was in, in uh, Reuters News of the Weird or um, Oddly Enough or something like that. Anyway, I remember this story from years ago about a, uh, a bunch of burglars who broke into a department store in England. And this was a very unusual crime. Um, breaking into a department store might not, not be an unusual crime. But uh, what these guys did in the department store certainly was unusual. Um, they broke in at night and actually managed to be in the store for some time undetected. And uh, if I recall correctly, their, uh, their presence was entirely unknown 
uh, the next morning when the store opened for business as usual. Um, and then the truly devious part of their crime um, remained undiscovered. Now, what would you expect uh, criminals to do? I won't ask you what you might do. Uh, what might you expect criminals to do who have extended time alone in a vast department store? carry off everything they could, or at least select the most valuable items and take them. Uh, but instead of seeking and seizing these valuable items and ignoring the less valuable items, what these guys did was exchange the value of the items by taking the price code off of one thing and putting it on another. Okay? All throughout the store. And so a few cheap pens would cost you $150, a two-pack of socks for $125, and meanwhile, designer bags were marked for $10.99. That's not $1,099, that's $10.99. And leather coats for $7.50, as in $7.50. New refrigerators went on sale for $30, and some purely average throw pillows became $1,500 items. You get the idea. But here's the truly crazy part. As I said, the store opened for business as usual and did business as usual well into the day before they realized something had gone horribly wrong. Something had been horribly confused. And then they shut down immediately. Crazy story, huh? Uh, We might be tempted to say that the burglars had a sense of humor but their mischief actually cost the store thousands of dollars, or, you know, because it's in England, thousands of pounds uh, in losses. And, um, you know, because as you might imagine, uh, those who had the $150 pens uh, returned them and demanded justice and a refund and right now, right? Well, Meanwhile, those who kind of happened upon these luxury items for virtually nothing, they tended to get while the getting's good, as the saying goes, and uh, take the store for all it's worth and slip away before the store got wise, and they did. And uh, if I remember correctly, it was actually a man protesting his rights that brought this whole thing down. You see, uh, he and his wife had been shopping. I I don't remember the whole story, but, you know, he found some Gucci handbag or something, ridiculously priced at 20 bucks or something, right? And in ringing it up and trying to get while the getting's good, the clerk actually looked at this and said, that's really an extreme discount. <laughs> Realized something was wrong, a Gucci handbag for 10 bucks, 20 bucks, and refused the sale. But what did the man do? He began protesting his rights. You have to sell that thing to me for 20 bucks. It's my right to have it. <laughs> this bag worth $1,000. And, of course, that brought the, uh, the management running. And uh, 
They heard the one person over here protesting their $150 pens. This guy trying to get a bag for 20 bucks. They put two and two together and they realized something is drastically wrong. What happens when things get drastically wrong and, and grossly out of whack in respect to their true value? Well, in the case of this English department store, thousands of dollars are lost. Some people get ripped off, some people get lavish luxury, and some people get bent out of shape at what they think they're owed. Which brings us to Jonah, because as you've guessed by now, this story illustrates some of the realities in the story of Jonah. We have in Jonah is nothing less than a criminal distortion of the value of things, and in this case of people and even of nations. And we also have the, the disgruntled, bitter man declaring scandal and an outrage. And you know what? It is. God's love for Nineveh is a scandal and an outrage. There is outrageous and scandalous behavior in this story, some of it deeply shameful and distorting, and some of it incredibly, outrageously, even scandalously glorious. And my hope is that by God's grace, the illumination of his spirit, uh, we too will be scandalized in the best and most healing way possible by his lavish grace towards the utterly undeserving. Like you and me. So as I said, the story of Jonah is a familiar one, and and the problem with familiar stories is we think we know them. This is especially true and especially problematic with the book of Jonah. And as I said, we we can't um, teach it all, but you know, it is a familiar story. Even non-Christians think they've got the point of Jonah, don't they? I mean, if you stop somebody on the street, what do you know about the Bible, uh, Jonah? Oh, yeah, that's that story about the guy who gets swallowed by the whale, you know? It's a fish, by the way, but um, they think they know the main point. Uh, If they've studied a little bit more, maybe read a children's Bible story, gone to Sunday school, uh, they might know that Jonah was running from God, wasn't he? He was running from God. There's something that God wanted him to do, and he got on a ship headed for Tarshish. God sent a storm, hurled a storm, and Jonah ends up thrown in the sea, swallowed, and spends three days in the belly of a fish who then heaved him out and he was on the beach and went on his way finally to Nineveh. And then if they really know their stuff, they might know that Jonah went to Nineveh, preached, the people repented, and God spared Nineveh, who lived happily ever after. But what to do with that awkward part of the story in chapter 4. You know, if that's the typical interpretation that we have or understanding of Jonah, chapter 4 seems like an odd 
even extraneous, perhaps even distracting bit of material. It's anticlimactic. I mean, the real crisis of the story has obviously already happened, right? Jonah got broken, he repented, he came and he preached to uh, Nineveh and they repented and... And then this awful chapter 4 happens. But I want to suggest to you that that interpretation of of, uh, Jonah misses the point of Jonah. You know, if you have an interpretation of a four-chapter book that leaves 25% of it out, that might be your first clue (laughs) that you may have missed something. And so what I'm telling you this morning, uh, you know, this is not a novel interpretation. This isn't my interpretation. This is, this is, you read it and see. Look at how the storyline of Jonah comes to a crisis, not in chapter 1, not in chapter 2 in the belly of the whale, not in chapter 3 when the, uh, when the Ninevites repent, But in chapter 4, the great crisis is Jonah's anger against God for his saving grace towards the Ninevites. It's a scandal and an outrage, and it's seething anger. If that doesn't grab your attention, you're missing it. So more, you know, this is, this, is, this is the common consensus of scholars. This is not something new. Um, our Bible story books sometimes really distort Jonah into some moralistic tale. I asked a group of pastors once, I was teaching our, our TLI curriculum on, on Jonah, and I said, what's the story of Jonah? What's the main point? And every one of them said, it's a, it's a story about not running from God. It's a story that tells you, you better not run from what God's telling you to do. (laughs) I think they missed the point. You'll find as you read, and I trust that you will read, you'll be a Berean and search the scriptures to see if what I'm saying is so. I think you'll find that the book of Noah is not a story of a runaway prophet swallowed and regurgitated by a fish. It's not about a city of Nineveh. It's not about a plant. It's not about a worm. The book of Jonah is first and foremost a book about God himself. The Lord God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. God is the subject of Noah. In fact, it's his grace, shocking grace, that is the subject of Noah. He saves undeserving wretches like me and sometimes scandalizes the saved, or at least the self-righteous, again, like me. So let's look at chapter 3. I don't have time to go into these things, but as you study, look at the amazing number of repeated phrases in Jonah. It is a key to interpreting 
Jonah. There are these phrases that are repeated again and again and again and again, back and forth between the first two chapters and the second. Look at how the third chapter opens. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. That should be a clue. The second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. It's a repetition from the first verses of chapter 1. Arise, go to Nineveh and call out. Arise, go, cry out. It's repeated. We should say at least a little bit about why Jonah didn't want to arise and go to Nineveh. I'll give you a little more detail later, but here, just understand that Assyria, the, the nation that Nineveh was a part of, was a rival power to Israel in the Fertile Crescent. Assyria was hated for their barbarism. They also were hated because they threatened the very existence of nations that they conquered. Why? Well, they had this thing of taking the nations and the people that they had um, conquered and scattering them and spreading them throughout the population of their empire so that they mixed them up with others and people lost their distinction and ultimately they are identity. It's kind of like the 8th century BC version of the Borg from Star Trek, you know. Um, Your uniqueness has been added to our own. Um, You're absorbed. You're assimilated. And like the Borg, um, resistance is futile. Anyway, um, I mean, what's more scary than having your identity lost, being absorbed as a people in a mass empire? The Hebrews and everybody else hated the Assyrians. We'll talk about this more later. But as you can see, Jonah, uh, you can see why Jonah may have wanted to flee in the other, uh, other direction and why it took a storm and a swim and a fish to bring him back. We don't know what he looked like after that. I, I've heard people say that, you know, being in the belly of a fish, you may have bleached him white. Anyway, he was a pretty scary dude by the time he showed up and started crying out to uh, Nineveh. And look at the message that he gives here. It's like the street pe- preacher with the sign, you know, turn or burn. Right? <laughs> Except that Noah only has the burn part. (laughs) There's no turn in his message. Jonah does not want the Ninevites to turn. He's afraid that they won't burn. (laughs) He's afraid that they won't burn. He's fulfilling the letter of the law, but not the spirit, right? He's displaying one attribute of God while ignoring the other. God help us. This convicts me. How often we want to present one part of God, and in our righteousness we say, you know, God's going to judge us, or I'm going to stand on this moral principle, or you can't do that. And we fail to rightly represent the gracious God who's sending us, like Jonah, to a wicked city, 
but surprise, the, the people of uh, Nineveh believed God. I, I love that. I, you know, it's a moment of humor to me. They didn't believe Jonah. They believed God. They believed God. They heard God in Jonah's speech. What a, what a broken messenger. What a miserable messenger. And yet, God speaks to sinful people. Well, the message, um, they believed God. <clears throat> they called for a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. The message even reaches the king. Now, I doubt Jonah brought it because he only went one day into a three-day city. Look at the simple moral clarity these people had. Jonah didn't tell them much, did he? But they believed what God had shown them and what little they knew. Look at the king's response. The king hears it. He gets up from his throne, removes his robe, covers himself with sackcloth, sits in ashes, demonstrative of guilt and grief. He is agreeing with God, believing God. And you see the decree that he makes. But look at this. It's so interesting. He not only says fast, but he says, let everyone turn. <laughs> turn. Jonah gave the burn <laughs> without the turn. And here we have a pagan king providing the rest. And you know what? God did relent. Look at verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Look at what the king had said. Look at what the king had said. Who knows? <clears throat> He didn't know. He had very little information. But as I said, this pagan king provided the turn. And this convicts me. He had very little information except the God-given announcement and the God-given conscience that he was guilty and under judgment and needed to repent. I wonder, I wonder, sometimes... Do we do so much with so little? Do I do so much with so little? In all of my knowledge, our knowledge, perhaps the most simple understanding of God as holy, a God before whom we are guilty, before whom and to whom we should repent of our sins and to whom we should look for mercy, if these simple things don't just simply escape us and we don't act on them, we don't turn from our sin. In our knowledge of God, we sometimes know too much. Oh, well, God will forgive that. God will watch you. Eh, it's not the big Whoa. Be careful. Do we nuance, do I nuance and excuse and subtly justify sin? 
By speaking only of God's forgiveness, do I represent to myself one part of God to the exclusion of another, forgetting that our God is a consuming fire? That he will not be mocked. That the wages of sin is death. There is forgiveness from God, but it doesn't come from ignoring sin. It doesn't come from rationalizing, justifying it, blame shifting, or from shooting the messenger. The mercy of God towards sinners come when sinners admit that they're sinners. It's simple. When they agree with God and deeply acknowledge personal guilt before a holy God and plead with him for mercy. And you see, there is forgiveness with God. In fact, forgiveness begins with God. Forgiveness is God's idea. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to our God. Do you realize that it's God himself who, in an act of sovereign, loving mercy, sent an unwilling, imperfect, sinful, selfish, pathetic prophet like Jonah to announce their sinful state? Did you... Do do we realize that conviction is a grace of God? Conscience is a gift. It is his grace to convict us of our sin before him rather than just to snuff us out. It's his grace to bring conviction to us and call us to repentance. It is all of grace. This says so much about God. Salvation belongs to our God. No man seeks after God. God seeks after men. Salvation begins with God. It is God's work for which he gets all the glory, all of it. He will not share it. No man seeks after God. God seeks after men. Nineveh was not looking for God. They didn't even know God. God came looking for them. Their evil could have come up before him, as it says in chapter 1, verse 1, and he could have simply snuffed them. The truly stunning thing is that he does not snuff us out in the instant of our first sin in Adam, but that he prepared a way of salvation and came looking for us. Brothers and sisters, let your theology of God be rooted, be formed, be unshakably founded in the first response of God to the first sinners before him. Have you thought about this? In all the things we know about God, look at this most first fundamental lesson. Adam and Eve ate the fruit, didn't they? 
their eyes were opened. And they did what? They hid. They fled. They covered themselves, crawling under bushes, desperate, desperate to hide themselves from the shame that dropped on them like a cosmic ton of bricks. The insufferable crushing weight of guilt as their eyes were opened and they saw that they were naked and uncovered before God and their lack of clothes was the least of their worries. But what did God do? Beloved, see the nature and character of God. See the grace and the loving kindness of God to sinners in making them hear his voice. What happened? They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of of the day. What a precious, precious verse. They hid in terror in their naked state. And God calls out to the man, let that grace, let that call, let his coming to sinful Adam and Eve hit you equally like a cosmic ton of bricks. God coming to man. Bless his name. Where are you? He calls out. It's not God who needs to know. It's Adam, isn't it? God, in his mercy, wants to show Adam He wants to judge him in his mercy. He wants to save him. He wants to redeem him. He wants to reconcile him. He wants to adopt him. These are all grace, each one of them, grace upon grace. And it all belongs to him. Salvation belongs to our God. Bless his name. Adam didn't seek God, and neither do we. But God demonstrated his own love for us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's glorious, scandalous love of God. You can't make this stuff up. It's too amazing to be believed unless he had said it and unless he had done it. It's simply shocking when we come to know what God has done for us and the mercy he extends to us. But you've got to be told, right? Which brings us back to this king of Nineveh. Do you remember what he said? Who knows? (laughs) Well, Jonah knew. Jonah knew all of these things. He knew all of these things. And here's where the scandal just gets insane, crazy. He knew this stuff. And it it was actually what he knew that became the reason why he did not want to go to Nineveh. Sometimes we think our knowledge is going to produce all these great things in us. Sometimes our knowledge produces insane things in us. He doesn't, he wants the burn, not the turn. And he knows that God is a turner. He turns hearts, he turns men, and he turns himself. It's what 
Jonah knows about God that stops him from doing what God wants him to do. It's just, what? Crazy, crazy. This is what happens here in chapter 4, verse 1. As you read it, you should just go, what? Jonah knew. Look at what he says. Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my own country? This, (laughs) this is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And therefore now, Lord, take my life. Can you just feel the rage? It's better for me to die than to live. You know, this is just... What, what, what on earth makes this happen in Jonah? It it, it, it blows your mind, doesn't it? How can you know these things about God? And what becomes the reason that you're not going to go do this? I, 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 I will not pretend to be able to, to diagnose or much less fully articulate the twistedness of his sinful heart or mine. It is shocking. It should shock us. It displeased Jonah exceedingly. You know, you might read that in the, action, in the, in the Hebrew as it became evil to Jonah as a great evil. He thought God was evil in what God wanted to do in Nineveh. Why did it seem so evil to Jonah? Well, on the surface level, as I said before, it probably does have to do with the people of Nineveh. The Assyrians are brutal idolatrous, rivals to the Jews, right? Jonah considered it evil to associate them because Jonah was actually kind of a nationalist patriot prophet. You know, the book of Jonah is not the first time we meet Jonah in the Bible. First time we read Jonah in the Bible is in 2 Kings chapter 16, 14. 2 Kings chapter 14 Let me read it for you quickly. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So much we could say here. The nation itself is twisted and evil. But he did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the borders Ooh, the borders. He restored the borders from Libo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah. And according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke to his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from gath Hipper. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, and there was none left bound or free. These are the Assyrians. There was none to help Israel, but the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. So he saved them 
by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. You see, Jonah was here in this moment of national crisis and in this beating back of the enemy and this restoration of former glory, right? Bringing back the good old days of national power for Israel. Who wouldn't want to be a part of that? And pushing back Assyria even better. But let me ask, what what exactly was the purpose of that power? You see it intimated here. God, God is doing this because of his covenant with Israel. What was God's purpose in Israel? Wasn't it to display God to the nations? Didn't Israel, and thus the Israelites themselves, and especially, hello, their national prophet, Jonah, didn't they exist to glorify God and display and communicate his glory and greatness and goodness to others? Isn't that the purpose of their nation? So many things to say here. Jonah has an identity problem because his nationalism trumps his God-given responsibility, both as an Israelite and as a prophet, to declare God's glory to the nations. How twisted is that? So many parallels here. Consider a few for us as Christians the Israel of God, his witnesses, his ambassadors to those around us, to the church, his bride, his body, his family here on earth. What are our purposes and what might trump those purposes and subvert those purposes to other agendas? God help us. Jonah had identity problems. He confused these things, these values in his own life, in his own nation. Perhaps most deeply, he failed to see his true identity as a sinner, right? So we move beyond this surface level of national rivalry of patriot sentiment, and we come to this more personal moral level, to a deep-seated self-righteousness that lurks in Jonah and I think lurks in us. The offense and the seeming evil that Jonah adjudicates here is based on a moral judgment that the Ninevites don't deserve saving and that it was evil to save them. Think about that for a minute. What kind of presuppositions and foundations is that kind of judgment based on? Well, first of all, really comes from an insane, an insane, self-deluded, secretly held belief that we somehow do deserve God's favor. And the not-so-subtle belief that the Ninevites don't. You see, what seems so evil to Jonah is God's grace towards those whom Jonah believes should not be saved. What makes sense, what seems right and just and good, is that they get the overthrowing, the burn that God is promising them. 
It just seems wrong and unjust if they don't get what they deserve. And even worse, that they might get what they don't deserve. So exactly what kind of sinners do deserve to be saved? Who has the right to God's forgiveness? Are there some types of people whom God cannot save or even shouldn't save? Are there categories of sin that God cannot possibly forgive and even shouldn't forgive? Let's ask ourselves some questions. Are there some people that we would be happy to see saved? Are there some people we might be angry to see saved? Are there some people we believe could never be saved? Are there people that you think never should be saved? What would happen to us? You know, if we arrived at the metaphorical gate of heaven, you know, and knock, 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 and the door opens, and who's behind that door? I can guarantee it's going to be shocking. I just guarantee because of the nature of God and his grace, we're going to be shocked at who we see there. We're going to be shocked at who we see there. Put it another way, are there people that you can't imagine not being punished, not perishing? Conversely, those who you would be enraged not to see punished? As I said, this self-righteousness lives in all of us because we are almost always continually making these moral judgments because of our wicked hearts and this deep-seated guilt that goes back to the Garden of Eden. The self-justifying, sin-hiding nature The garden is not so foreign and far from us. We inevitably make moral rationalizations and judgments in a way that makes our sin look less and others look greater. And I mean, that's the first thing Adam and Eve did, isn't it? Blame shift. It's defensive. It's a deep yet instant expression of the guilt of our guiltiness. We want to shift it off push the light off of us onto someone else. We long to escape our own sin by moral remeasurement of others and blame shifting and a thousand other pathological responses that come utterly naturally to me and maybe to you. We're fallen sinners desperately in need of grace. And the simple fact is that in the face of the utterly inscrutable holiness of God. Not one person, no sinner deserves anything but judgment, overthrow, and more forever. And this is exactly what grace is. This is exactly what the mercy of God is like. This is the Lord God, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. On a second level, 
of not so subtle message in God's anger or in, in Jonah's anger at God here. He's angry first because these guys shouldn't be saved. But it's also a very direct accusation of God himself. That God himself is somehow unjust. That he's evil in saving the Ninevites. Read verse 4-2. Is this not what I said? This is why I knew. You know, when, when, when he says that, I, I knew that you, this is what you were like. A gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Does that sound familiar to you? It should. It's an almost direct restatement of Exodus 34. When God comes before Moses and declares his name, his nature, what he's like. This phrase, this packet, functions as a kind of Old Testament creedal statement about God. It expresses his covenant nature towards his people and his holy, merciful nature as God. And it appears in many places throughout the Old Testament, most notably in in Psalm 103, Psalm 145. The merciful nature of God, his graciousness in reaching out to save sinners, it's a repeated theme that flows out of his very character and is seen throughout Scripture in his relationship towards his creation and his creatures and those made in his image, including the Ninevites. God's mercy has a long, lavish history. You remember the king asked who knows? Jonah knows. It's precisely why, it's precisely what he knows that makes him flee the other way. But now he's come back. He gives the the burn rather than the turn. And if that's not shocking and tragic enough, now he's delivered half his message to Nineveh and almost delivers the other half to God. He turns his anger on the Lord himself, charging him with evil conduct. And as I said, this is the ultimate insanity. Jonah, utterly oblivious. This is the insanity of it. Jonah is utterly oblivious to God's saving work in his own life. And God's lavish mercy towards him. This is such a warning to me. It speaks of the incredibly blinding power of self-righteousness. It blinds Jonah, who stands there... (laughs) The result, he stands there as the result of God's saving mercy. One, God called him as a prophet. That's grace. God made him a part of the people of Israel. That's grace. What mercy, what kindness to grow up knowing and learning the word of God, to be schooled and taught the law of God the right ways of God, to live among the people of God. What grace. 
And he's called as a prophet, as I said. And, and this call is a mercy. And it's, it's an expression of God's mercy, right? It's just God's character throughout this. He's living under this fountain of blessing, this fountain of mercy, this fountain of grace, right? And then God calls him to extend that grace. And what does he do? I'm going the other direction as fast as I can. (laughs) You know, (laughs) if I was God, (laughs) right? But God in his mercy, what does he do? He, he, He goes, and God in his mercy hurls a storm at the ship. And I just don't have time to go into this, but another bunch of pagans who get it, (laughs) while Jonah doesn't, right? What do you mean? (laughs) You know, they're just like, hello, McFly, you know? Um, And they throw him overboard, Mercy to save themselves, right? And God sends this fish. What Mercy, 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 grace, saving him in the belly of the whale. There's nothing natural about that. Just a little, little sidebar here. I've heard so many people try to say, well, you know, you could, man could swallow and, you know, be swallowed by a fish and it's, there's a natural reason that that could happen. There's no natural reason that that can happen. All right? The whole, it's no more natural than a man being crucified and being put in the ground for three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. Jesus made that parallel. There's nothing natural about it. It is the supernatural saving work of God, and it's supposed to appear to us as that. God saving Jonah and delivering him to give a message. It's just, it's just grace. It's grace. And Jonah is utterly blinded to his own need, his own sin, and he rages at God, and God, in his mercy, in his grace, comes and he says something. It's, it's grace. Jonah, are you right to be angry? Why did God say that? To, 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 to condemn him? No, he asked him to get him to look at himself and realize the insanity of what he was saying. That's mercy. That's grace. Do you do right to be angry? No answer. (laughs) No answer. But you know what? God keeps talking. God keeps talking. Jonah goes out of the city. He sits to the east waiting to see what's going to happen. God keeps talking. Look what he does. Verse 6. The Lord appointed. There's another word. Look for appointed throughout the uh, book of Jonah. God is at work. God appointed a plant. Again, don't, you know, people try to say, well, you know, there's these plants, they grow up real fast. You know, Look, there's nothing natural about this plant. It grows up like that. It's big enough like that to shade an adult man in the middle of the desert. There's nothing natural about that. It's a sign. It's a sign from God of his mercy and his grace towards this punk 
profit. Do you do well to be angry? God keeps talking and shows him that he has absolutely no reason to be angry. Can you see what God's doing here? Can you maybe sense what he might be showing us as well? You see, God in his grace and mercy is (laughs) unbelievably slow to anger. And in his steadfast love, he's pushing us towards the implications of our own unworthiness, just like he is with Jonah perhaps exposing our own self-righteousness and confronting us with the scandalous nature of his grace. The whole idea is that we be shocked in the most healing and wonderful way at his salvation. Look at what he does here. He sends this plant. It's a grace. Just like the plant is a sign to show Jonah that it is nothing natural that is saving him, God then sends a worm to show that God doesn't owe Jonah any mercy. And Jonah is provoked again. He looks at that plant, he looks at that worm, and And again, the question of God, the merciful question of God exposing the blinding, insane, self-destructive rage of Jonah, exposing his self-righteousness, exposing the distorted value and judgment. You know, somebody's got to reach in and save Jonah from his own head. That's what God is doing here. And he asks the question again, do you be well to be angry? And Jonah says, Yeah, I do. I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, in his mercy, he explains. He tries to make the lights come on. You pity a plant. (laughs) I mean, it, it should just fall on us like a pathetic statement. You Pity a plant. (laughs) For which you did not labor. You did nothing. This isn't the result of your work. This isn't anything you did. You didn't make it grow. It came up in a night. It's not a natural plant. And it perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left. They, they just, they can't, they're incapable of making a moral judgment here. They just, they just don't know. And much cattle. You can see God in his grace and mercy exposing the implications. My great desire and prayer this morning is that God would expose us. That we would 
be once again struck with the amazing grace of his mercy towards us. We deserve nothing. God is the Savior. God has come to us. Salvation is of the Lord. It's nothing we do and nothing we are. And maybe that's just what we need this morning, is just simply to be renewed in our awe of who God is. He's the subject of Jonah. He's the subject here. Would we be rooted and grounded and fortified and strengthened in the character of God displayed? Let's not be like Jonah and say, well, I'm not like Jonah. No, we're just like Jonah. Let's not repeat Jonah's mistake, right? Saying, well, yeah, wow. Should judge that punk prophet. What about us? How faithful are we? We're just as faithless. We're just as fickle. We're just as twisted. We're just as insane in our own assessment of our righteousness. May God in his mercy bring us again to an amazement at his grace towards us. Can you see the loving, gracious hand of God in your life? Mercy, grace, kindness, loving kindness. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. And his mercies never come to an end. Great is his faithfulness. Maybe you're, maybe you're like Jonah this morning, you know, and it's some self-righteousness that God would, in his mercy, strip away expose you again to his kindness and grace towards you. May God have mercy on us. May he show us. May, may he reveal ourselves to us, reach into us, and turn the lights on. Maybe you're like Nineveh this morning. Maybe the things that we're talking about are just, oh, what? Wow, I thought I knew the story about Jonah, but what's all this about God? Well, like the king of Nineveh, you, you don't need to know much. We just need to know that we're sinners and that God in his mercy has sent Jonas to us, weak punk prophets. <laughs> but in his mercy, he's called out to you. There is repentance. There is forgiveness in God because of his steadfast love for those he's made, and, and that's you. He's made you. He loves you. You don't need to know much. You just need to know your sin. And then you need to know the grace of God in Christ to you. And if you want to know more of that, please, you know, we'd be here. We'd love to explain the, the lavish grace of God in our own lives to you.
So maybe we're Jonah, and maybe we're Nineveh, but either way, uh, my greatest desire is that we be renewed in his unfathomable love for us, see our wretched state outside of him, that we be deeply broken in the most helpful and healing way. And just to remind you, you know, it's a grace of God that he would reveal ourselves to us to bring conviction. Don't, don't be afraid of the conviction of the Lord. It's grace. Because in his conviction, he calls us to repentance and forgiveness because he's got it to give. It's the reason he's sent to begin with. It's the reason he reached out to begin with, called to us. It's a grace. In the abundance of his steadfast love, that he would save us, forgive us, and relent from his judgment and heal us. Bless his name. But you know, he didn't just save us for ourselves. We're not the end. We're not the goal. We're not the target. Yes, our salvation is his plan. But he has saved us not for ourselves, but for himself. And so I pray that he would continue that work in us. He saved us for his glory. He reconciled us for his own glory to display the outrageous goodness of his saving glory in us and through us to the nations, to those around us. Hear the word of the Lord from Titus chapter 3. I love this. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of his Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Bless his name. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. God, make us profitable. You see, we're not just saved to escape judgment, but for God's glory and for the good of others. And I love what Paul in Romans chapter 15, uh, verse 7 says as he reflects upon the saving work of God and the glory of God in salvation. And he writes, therefore, because of what God has done, therefore, welcome one another. 
as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Welcome one another. May God in his mercy bring the saving work that he's done in our own life to its conclusion, its expression, that we would be welcomers, that we would seek to extend that goodness and grace to others. God have mercy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, who is sufficient for these things? But we thank you that you've made us sufficient in Christ and that through us you desire to spread the fragrance of the knowledge of God in us. For some, it's the fragrance of death. For some, it's the fragrance of life. Lord, give us grace to be mercy, to be fragrant, to be spreading the knowledge of you. Not taking what we know and and holding it in or, or worse yet, using it as a way to justify why we shouldn't extend mercy. But God, taking what we know about you, your graciousness, your mercy, your loving kindness, delighting and rejoicing and being in wonder of it again in our own lives. And then out of that wonder, Lord, that we would simply just say what you've done and and who you are. Express your nature uh, to those around us. It's a desperate world. They know little to nothing. God, help us. Give us grace. And Lord, may we extend that grace to each other, Lord. We, we are selfish people even here this morning, even amongst ourselves, God. By your mercy, by your grace, break us again. Renew us in our awe of your goodness and help us to see others as fellow recipients of your grace, of your goodness. And help us to welcome one another with our lives and and with your grace. We ask it, Lord, because you intend to do it. So uh, help us today. In Jesus' name we pray all these things.